Welcome to Agile Actually. Today we're going to be talking to uh, Ralph about our product managers obsolete. We've been hearing some whispers uh, on the interwebs that um, it's a, a product manager V's product owner, which should you have? Um, and we want to discuss what what's what's going on there. Is it is it really a thing? So we've invited Ralph along. Ralph is a product manager extraordinaire. Uh, he's been working in the industry for, for many years. Would you like to introduce yourself, Ralph? Um, yes, I, I'm Ralph. Um, I'm, I'm a uh, turned software engineer. So my background is computer science. Uh, I started as a programmer in 97. I got around applying first basically as a programmer, then I added agile to that. And through that, I discovered Scrum, and through that, I discovered product ownership, uh, next to basically also being in charge for, for various products. Um, in that regard, <clears throat> I've been creating, helping to create the product owner curriculum at Scrum.org for the PSPO training there, together with Don McReal. And the both of us, we also put our heads together and wrote a book about what it means to be a Scrum product owner. And in that regard, kind of like, we also talked about differences and similarities about product owner versus product manager. Awesome. So you've immediately opened up the big chasm. Uh, what's the difference between a product manager and a product owner? Are they the same thing? Are they now, this is uh, something very interesting because there are several layers you could slice slice away here, and uh, like like an onion. There are different schools in Scrum, what a product owner is and what a product owner isn't. Uh, if you look into the Scrum guide, the product owner is accountable for maximizing the value of the team, the Scrum team, of the work the Scrum team is doing. Now, often product ownership is seen as the widget factory. It's like the team down there and we just throw them stuff and they, they crank it out and they leave it, deliver the, the components and widgets. Now then there's this other thought of school where we really think like product owner. So who is the person being accountable for the final outcome of the product? Uh, and that's essentially my thought, uh, thought of, of uh, thinking here is that as a product owner, you are in charge, you own, as your name tells you, the product. And that means you will be essentially be a product manager, but you approach it from a different angle. You approach it more from an agile mindset in the way you collaborate with your developers specifically, but also maybe how you engage uh, your stakeholders, how you try to close your feedback loops more frequently, because as we all learn and know that the world is changing faster and faster around us. So kind of being on a, on a specific path for too long will probably lead you into that end. Uh, and so in this regard, this is kind of, for me, basically the, the one sentence answer is a product owner is a product manager with an agile mindset. Now, this also opens another kind of world because there are so many product owners out there who don't know about product management skills. Uh, they're just, I don't know, being, hey, you, you join the Scrum team, uh, you, you know the product owner, and they have no clue about what it means. That they're like that's, that's no worries. We've got loads of Scrum Masters out there that don't know how to be a Scrum Master either, right? So what you're saying is that you can have the title and still suck. 
Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's the short, I'm, I'm sad bit, truth. Uh, I'm a bit argumentative today. Although in, 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 in fairness, it's that, that applies to any job for anybody anywhere in the world, right? You can have the job title, you can, can be given the responsibility or accountability to, to fulfill some job and you can still suck at it because either you don't know what you're doing or you understand it to be different than it actually needs to be, right? Yeah. So and to be more kind, we can say there's levels of competence, right? So depending where you are in your personal journey, um, how much you know, how much you've been exposed to. Obviously, when you start out, it's going to be very different to where you know you're at 20, 30 years later on. Exactly. Yeah. And and for me, the, the way I think about it, and this is kind of, you know, often product owners they 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 receive a specification document and they're just basically you implement that you're in charge of that and then sometimes they see themselves as the story writers in Chira and then the tooling and so on and that's essentially again this is the wrong approach you're ascribed for for someone else or a proxy product owner or what we often use as a term now a real product manager manages a product you know you take care about the requirements you take care about the stakeholder management you take care about uh closing the feedback loops with uh, important people um, with the market to, to learn as quickly as possible to see whether you're going in the right direction. And, and this is, I think this is, this is a big problem because there's, there's a majority of, the, of the, the industry which understands product owner as the widget factory. And there's a, a small subset who really understands we have to bring somebody in there who who carries the vision, who has the understanding where he or she wants to take the product, but a clear final end goal, but the path might be open and then really collaborates with the people, the workforce behind that. And the workforce could be large. And it's not sometimes people say, well, a product owner can only work with, with eight developers. No, you, you might have a bunch of teams behind you for which you're still in charge. And then you have to find also the, the right people to help you. So you will become more strategic engaged and you would leave the tactical and operational stuff more to the teams themselves, the scrum teams. Yeah, I, I've seen that a lot in, in larger organizations that have been successful at moving, moving towards faster delivery of, of work is that they have somebody who is that, that one product owner doesn't matter what their job title is, right? Doesn't matter what their job title is. They have somebody who's that one product owner. And that one product owner um, finds, for want of a better expression, lieutenants that are able to take different parts of the product and fulfill their vision within it. So depending on how you look at it, you could say that that lieutenant is a, is a product owner, right, at that level inside of the product. But really, they're, they're, they're not the product owner. The, the product owner has delegated some part of their ownership to this individual so that they can, they can, they can serve that larger, larger audience. Exactly. So I just want to wind it back a bit because you, you, you've both wandered down the scaling pattern. And, like, I think that's a separate topic. I just want to close out this first point. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is that a product manager, an effective product manager, has the understanding and accountability for the whole life cycle of the product from inception to withdrawal from the market 
and they will be looking for maximizing the value of the product. So how do they run experiments to learn, grow, sustain, nurture, and then ultimately withdraw products from the market? And this is this is this product management discipline that started off in the 50s. Um, now, yeah, what correct. I've also heard you say is there's various, there's almost two schools of thought about product ownership. And there's a very common one, which I think we're all united in disagreeing with, that the product owner just does requirements engineering. They, they look after the backlogs and they're a minion that plays with the dev teams, whereas the product manager does the really big thinking. Exactly. Yeah. I think we're all united. We, we don't agree with that. We think a product owner is an agile product manager, is focused on maximizing the value. And if I could be really blunt, um, a product owner is a product manager with a dedicated group of people to actually ship stuff. So instead of drawing pictures in the cloud, they've got some people to make it, make that product happen. And using Ken, one of Ken Schrober's favorite words, they can reify faster because they can close that feedback loop by building something, getting it done, getting it to market. Exactly. Have I, are we aligned on that? Is, is that where we're in agreement? Absolutely. I, 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 I definitely agree. I definitely agree, Simon. And, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a kind of additional piece that I think for, for such a long time, people have believed that product owner is a job title. And you see product owner jobs being advertised in uh, 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 on the internet, right? On on LinkedIn, and when we're talking about the product owner, we're usually talking about the accountability that's described in the Scrum Guide, which which is not a job title. It's it's an account a set of accountabilities that have limited scope looking at the minimum that accountability needs in order to, to fulfill that empirical system that Scrum's trying to create. And there are lots of things outside of that accountability that that individual will need in order to be hugely successful, right? They're going to need other skills outside of that, that, that core accountability because the Scrum Guide's really just focused on this is this is Scrum. This is product. This is what we're trying to create, and this is a way of starting to work towards that idea. So, in organizations, you'll see the job title of product owner, but that job title of product owner does not usually, in my experience, just include the accountability of the product owner described in the Scrum Guide, right? It also includes the additional stuff that product owners need to do, that product managers need to do, or some of those additional things. So we'll have more accountabilities than, than the Scrum Guide might describe. So there's a difference between the product owner as described in the Scrum Guide and a company's job title of product owner, which actually might be a product manager with much wider scope than product owner. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've, there's two things that you've, you've highlighted there. The first one is that the Scrum Guide is deliberately incomplete. Yep. <laughs> so you can do stuff on top of the Scrum Guide and still work. Um, the second one, I think it's a really important distinction, is the Scrum Guide 2020 changes 
the term role was replaced with accountability for that specific reason. Yep. So it's some it's activities you perform with a scrum team. Um, but something you can do with a scrum team, your job title might be different. What's your thoughts, Ralph? I think kind of, uh, I agree with what, what Martin said, and I think this is actually the way I like to see things if, if, if the organization really thinks along those lines. But then for me, it's like what you mentioned is that the role was essentially replaced with accountability because once you join a company and you work on something, you're accountable for certain outcomes and, and that's what you have to put your skin in for that. But I think also the accountability has to be coupled with the right authority because what I often see is that in organizations, you're suddenly accountable for a whole bunch of things, but you can only, you only have the authority for a subset. And that's set up for failure. And then people start, you know, all kind of weird behavior suddenly emerges and, and happens. So I think kind of, if, if you go back to what Martin said, suddenly you own this product in the regard of Scrum, but also in a bigger picture as we consider it in our organizational structures and setup, how we have to operate. You have to have you have to demand also the right authority as a product owner to act on that and be active. Yeah. Did, have you seen that? Have you seen challenges with people uh, achieving empowerment? Um, what I often do is, is it's a really simple simple exercise. It's like uh, a two by two, like uh, strategic thinking, tactical thinking, business orientation, technically orientation. That's basically, and then ask people, where do you see yourself as a product owner and which quadrant should you be? And most often it's kind of like in most of the cases, it would be, you should be strategic and, uh, and business oriented. You might do on a technical internal platform product, a big one, sending you more technology oriented, but normally it's strategic business orientation. And then basically also ask other people around that product owner, maybe the people in charge of that product owner, where do you see your product owner to be active? And if they are in different quadrants, you're set up for conflict already because whatever you do, you will displace your superiors or your superiors will always be displaced with what you're doing because even though you think you're doing a really well job. So I think sometimes it's just even before you really engage on that journey or as an organization to bringing in a thinking with product owners to see what's the alignment. To, and if this is aligned, you know, good conversations will take place. If not, frustration will emerge. I like that. So you create that effectively a Boston quadrant. Yeah. And for me, it's sometimes like just, you know, this is my garden, this is your garden, and this is defense. This is where we have to talk, you know, but this is, this is, this is where, where I can operate and do whatever I think is the right thing to do. So, so R Ralph's the reason, Simon, that that exercise exists in the, my PSPO mural. I, I got, I stole it from Ralph with his permission, but I stole it from Ralph. <laughs> no worries. And I think it's really, it's really, I, I find that exercise that Ralph is talking about is, is really enlightening for product owners because, or people that have been given some kind of role within the space of product ownership, because they start to understand the difference between their, their authority within the organization and the accountability that they've been given and and at least if we can at least identify why that frustration is happening 
because many people don't realize that a frustration is happening because of these mismatches. If we can at least identify it for them, then that can be really helpful. And I, and I do find not so much for public trainings, but in private trainings, when I use that exercise, because usually there's a bunch of people who are product, who are product owners are going to be product owners or who are being coached to be product owners in an organization in that group. And then whoever's in charge of that group will come as well. Right. Usually you have that, that, that leader in that space. And then they see not only where they would put themselves and their difference between authority and, and accountability, but they, they see how their people perceive their authority and accountability, right? Because it's all about perceptions as well. Where do you perceive you need to be versus where you perceive you are, um, even if the reality is slightly different. And that's the beauty of Ralph's exercise is that the entire product management organization starts to get a better understanding of, of where that sits and, and the difference in communication. And they wonder why people are frustrated, right? Because they, they, they're, they've not got authority that matches their accountability that they're trying and to And for me, the problem yeah, underlying the problem problem agile principle here. Uh, and for me, it's often and like, you know, go ahead, Simon. <laughs> yeah. That, I think you've, you've tapped into this core agile principle of make the implicit explicit. And this yeah. is, I, I think it's recurring throughout organizations, regardless of the process, whether we're doing predictive management, uh, whether we're doing agile is being ex exceptionally clear on your constraints and your operational boundaries. Yeah. And exactly. what I love about really that exercise, Ralph, is it, highlights yeah and and for me it's often like the i like to call them those different mental models it's a little bit of an overused term these days but it's really about like what what is it going on in my head and and you know for me it's clear i, I have a really clear perspective i know exactly where i fit in but somebody else has a different point of view and they have a different perspective and and they're not they're not aligned and and this is i think where also going back to we just talked about agile principles like individuals interactions or collaboration over contract negotiation but kind of bringing people together just talking about these things and really understanding that we get more cohesion about our mental models essentially and by doing this we will harmonize the way we work and, and how value essentially can can flow in the long run yeah and what i like to do after I've had that initial shaping, which I see that exercise, I like using delegation poker from management three. Uh, yeah. What I've observed is most organizations aren't really good at articulating constraints and decision boundaries at a granular level. And that then creates conflicts because that, uh, that clarity is not there. Like I don't know, when I need to go and speak to my manager or leader. Yeah. Now in high trust, it's easier in small organizations because the trust is higher. And yep. also the ease of communication is higher in small organization. As soon as we get into Zaibatsu scale stuff, as soon as we get above 50 people, I would argue, or Dunbar's number of 80 people, all of a sudden, 
it becomes much harder to know what's what's in my decision remit. Where does my decision authority extend to? And that's where somebody's going to get upset that I'm nicking stuff from their turf. So bringing people together and having that clear articulation, this is my decision, that's your decision, and in the middle, here's where we're going to get together and make a joint decision. I think that's yeah. really key. And I think that particular behavior should transcend accountabilities or what have you. So we, we'll see the same thing happening at an engineering level, at a production level, as well as leadership level. If we can cascade the constraints and build the trust, the whole organization will be more agile because you've got better flow of discussion. Yeah. And for me, this is also this part of product ownership, because if, you, if you're a small startup, a small uh, company, you, know, you mentioned Dumbarton's number, everybody knows everybody, you just talk to each other and, and you make it work. There's no really no silos, there's a functional specific areas. You just basically all pull in the same direction. But now since the organization starts to grow, you often get functional silos or you have other structural kind of ways to and they always work great for one situation, but not for the other one. And if you do it the other way, kind of it's the opposite somehow. And this is really, I think, where this the areas where it doesn't really perfectly fit that we have to really talk about that and find a a common understanding about how we really anticipate it and want it to be. And and by doing this, I think this is really a good way to 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 shape the the definitions of what is our products, because as an organization, you often have more products and therefore more product owners and how do they align each other and how do they correspond and how do we make even sure then, let's say you, you are a big, big uh, multinational uh, company, but how can you make sure, for example, that your architecture grows cohesively, your testing approach, your quality standards are cohesively. And this is then another problem challenge on top of that uh, as product ownership kind of, because then maybe you have this agreement within your product with, with the organization, but then you have it also lateral, kind of with all the other uh, product organizations within your company as well. How can we communicate there? So I think this is, uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, important function to fill in an organization, being a good product owner. And, uh, and then I'm really sometimes sad when people ask me, is it okay I'm a product owner for 10 products? Uh, and then I, it's like, okay, I don't think you have really understood what product ownership or your organization hasn't understood what product ownership is all about because they are then part ownership for tiny widgets, you know, little bits and pieces here and there. Well, I, I think that there's two, there's two things that I think that are also important to mention. Um, the first is that Product ownership within the bounds of an organization that is building products for themselves or building products that they are going to sell, right? That's that's kind of like the optimal state of of product ownership. That's where that's where we can just look at the Scrum Guide and the Scrum Guide talks about that that type of product ownership, right? But the reality is that many people don't don't work in that position. They perhaps work in uh, professional services where they're not building products for themselves. They're building products for somebody else, another company, another corporate entity. And their product owners don't work for the same company that they work for. Right. So in the in the 
in the professional services world, I have a, I have an engineering team. I perhaps have somebody who is, a, um, you know, I'm going to have my team of people uh, who are doing the work. I'm perhaps going to have some kind of account manager, right? Somebody to, to, to manage that commercial relationship with the customer. And then I'm going to expect the customer to provide a product owner. Uh, I'm right? going to jump on that. Um, unless, and, and this is something that's very near to Ralph and I, uh, near and dear, it comes down to your procurement pattern, right? Because sure, yeah. Your traditional procurement model is land and gouge. I'll, I'll be, I'll simplify and it, I, it might be contentious, but I've seen it so many times where very large companies yeah. haven't got the capacity. So they, they put out a bid. It's the lowest possible. They, they then procurement teams are targeted on price, not by value, which is precious to us as agilists, as product owners, we're focusing on value. However, procurement who are, you know, some, some organizations are coming to the party. Most aren't procurement and legal are still, uh, very early adopters the contracts are then compared based on price and there will be some small point buried in the 300 pages of this very predictive contract about change requests and so the initial yep. price looks good but the change request price is punitive Yep. And so until we have the ability to build collaborative partnerships from the front, trying to use an adaptive iterative approach in building our products. So, Hey, we've got a product owner. You give me a team. We're basically on time and materials and we're trying to get a win-win here. If your contract is not written with that intent and your contract is you must have all your requirements signed off before you release the first payment, no organization can afford to be a, a few million in the hole before they get their first paycheck. And you see this, this conflict that we need the requirements signed off. And it's like, but we're not doing requirements, we're doing agile. Yeah, but the, the contract is written until the requirements milestone is achieved, we can't unlock any money and we need the money. And so you, you then get locked into it and it just sets up things in a very dangerous and disruptive way. So that that's the, the first- oh, my my favorite one, Simon, was working with an organization reasonably recently where the developers, the, 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 the professional services organization was on the hook for a certain number of story points per sprint. Oh, great. And story points had to be within a certain standard deviation of, <laughs> of, of, of normal in order for them to not get financial penalties. And I'm sure that they got really the numbers they were looking for and everything, but did, did, did it really happen behavior-wise? Yeah. You measure, you get what you measure. You get story points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, let's overestimate. Let's do all of these things here. And, and, and this is another thing is this is, I think also for me, the, the way I would expect a good product owner to, to be aware of that. You now, how can an agile procurement process look different? I mean, I was doing a big thing at um, Swiss Postal Service a couple of years back and we didn't put out the requirements. We put out we look organizations who can work in a specific way and we described the agile. We didn't call it agile, but, and then companies were applying. And so we could choose a company we trusted to work with. 
And then we went back to a times and material contract. Uh, but we also had, we had the definition of done in the contract. So every time we revised the definition of done, we had to also kind of go through the contracting again, but it worked pretty well. So essentially by the end of every sprint, they were paid for every, every item which was done. And everything which wasn't done, they didn't see money. So I was encouraging them to have, get stuff to done. It's better to have little things done than many things in progress and we don't get paid at all. Um, financing, you know, if you ask so people, hey, by September, you have to tell me exactly what you will be doing next year. Uh, and then you have to bring out, show them the plan, everything, and then you get the budget for that. And then basically you're stuck in this triangle again, scope, schedule, budget. Uh, and then as a good project manager, um, you you basically deliver on time, on scope, on budget, whether you deliver the right thing. That's another question that's uh, going back to. And I think this is an, another topic why I think kind of this term, I like this term product owner, because often we see product management and project management as, as running along. So there's somebody thinking about the product and gives it into a project manager. And so the, the, I'm not sure if the wording is right, but the discovery and delivery are separated. And I think if you do product ownership well, you bring discovery and delivery together. And, and I think Martin, it was you before I just say, oh, Simon, we don't do really requirement engineering that much anymore. What we do is iterative incremental product development. Every sprint, we deliver a working piece of product. We can look at full transparency. And this is also for me, product ownership is like, I am here, I'm a good product. I'm a good seasoned product manager but I want to work differently. So I need to have the authority to do different procurement. I need to have the authority to different uh, budgeting processes and these things. And this is where, honestly, again, sadly, I believe most organizations fail because they just say, we have been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. We can't change that. But there's something I'd like to pick up on there. Uh, how many times have you seen an organization use agile vocabulary for their old processes? Uh, it's beyond count. And I always think of the princess bride, you know, the movie, the princess bride, uh, there's a scene where the, the, the evil villain that's just captured the princess, he, he keeps getting uh, caught and he keeps using the word inconceivable. And at one point, Andre the Giant turns around and goes, I don't think that word means what you think it does. And I've seen it so many times where people go, oh, we're sprinting. And I'm like, oh, yeah, talk me through it. And they go, it's really easy. What we do is we do a requirement sprint, and then we do a design sprint, and then we do a build sprint, and then we do a test sprint, and then we do a packaging sprint, and then we do a stabilization sprint. My friend, I think you and I are using the word sprint very differently. Yeah. For this, for us to be product owners, for us to be agile, first of all, we need to break through the Oscar Wilde problem, which is nowadays everybody knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. So we need to break out of this cost mindset into a value mindset. Yeah. We need to break out of the utilization trap. You know, the mythical man month, you know, if we've, if we have nine women, we can have a baby in a month, right? Get out of that thinking. We need to yeah. focus on value and to focus on value. We need a quality focus. Let's understand what done, what finished, what releasable looks like. And then we can iterate quickly, run experiments, learn. 
build feedback loops. So, and, and, and building on top of that, Simon, I think most organizations, their, their main focus is resource efficiency. Now, you, you as, a, as an employee, you have to work 100% all day because otherwise you wouldn't be, you, your resource, your, your skill wouldn't be leveraged enough. But that's also interesting if you look into queuing theory and aspects like that. You know, once you start to use a, a street or highway more than 60%, you get the first traffic jabs. So you wouldn't, you know, we have this highway, let's use it. And then nobody gets a destination because you have a really long parking lot. So it's more thinking about flow efficiency and, and flow efficiency is what you just said, Simon, is really about how can we break value, bring value to the customer as quickly as possible. And this is where the sprints come into the picture because every sprint is a product increment, which we can then potentially deliver to them, or at least we can show it to them and collect the feedback if we're going in the right direction or not. What's your thoughts, Martin? You've been quiet, which is unusual. Well, I've actually been taking taking notes because there's lots of interesting, interesting things we've been talking about. And I think, um, Simon, you were talking about the agile, agile vocabulary, right? And I feel like there are a lot of people in organizations. Agile's been around a long time now. I mean, if you if you if you want to go back to extreme programming, it's been around since the eighties, right? So that's that's a, a you can probably go back further than that. But uh, if you want to talk about folatism, right? But the 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 these these words and terminology that came out of the Agile Manifesto 25, 26 years ago um, are in common usage now. But people don't understand what they mean, what their intent was. They just know how to use them. And th this has trickled down away from people that, that, that maybe should know better, right? Like the people we mostly deal with, which are in... Uh, software engineering companies or in product building companies to to procurement and sales and procurement and sales are trying to use the terminology not really understanding the implications of of what it is they're saying and you end up with contracts like the one that i mentioned right yeah. because it, it's oh these sound like great words and terms that we can bring in and I kind of understand the concepts wouldn't it be great if we had this in the contract and that would help us out and in actual fact it, it, it cuts the knees out of the engineering teams we're working at odds and I think the important thing that Ralph was was hitting on was that um, this, this thing you know like um, I feel like I've got a picture in my head of uh, 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 product, product owner equals agile product manager, right? Or exactly. some kind yeah. of relationship between that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but agile product management also includes agile procurement, agile contracts, agile financing, agile budgeting. All, all of those things have to come along as well. Otherwise you're going to be constrained with the same old Tayloristic hierarchical practices, and you're not actually going to be able to get the authority to do the things you need. Budgeting is a great example of that, right? How many product owners do you know that actually have control of their, control of their budget? 
let's put it this way: the ones I knew who had control over their budget were the best, most successful ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I was thinking about. Was was um, working with the Azure DevOps team at Microsoft and Brian Harry, who was the product unit manager, was the head honcho for the whole of whole of developer division, and he was that product owner that had the vision, had the the direction, and had the budget directly from the CEO, here's the money you have to go build this product. And he made sure that he owned the full stack. And in actual fact, before they moved to, to Agile around 2012, when they were doing Waterfall, they, they had to keep the separate legal teams happy and the separate marketing teams happy and the separate sales teams happy. Those were all separate departments within the organization. One of the things that he realized very early on and leveraged his own budget to be able to do it was, no, I can't rely on the legal department to provide me on demand and with understanding of our context, the services that we need. We're going to have to hire our own legal people. No, we can't rely on um, a, a, a separate department for delivering anything we have to hire our own people and they end up with security and you know sales and marketing and all of those skills within the bounds of their full full budgetary control because then we can align people's goals and outcomes right because a marketing department has a different goal and outcome and perhaps the most important thing this year is Windows, because Windows is doing a release this year. And what do we care about this Visual Studio thing going on over here? Actually, you've got to delay the launch of your product for 12 months because we're working on something else and we don't have time for you right now. Right? That's, 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 and I think that goes back to that bigger, wider view of product ownership that is agile product management that is you, you've got to be the top of that full authority i want what, what do i usually say fully fiscally accountable right? that's the <laughs> yeah. phrase that i quite often use yeah so and, and i think i'm not sure if it was the same guy but um maybe it was even you at a conference martin when i was listening to you is that in one department in Microsoft, the salespeople, they were not rewarded with how many sales they were doing anymore. They were rewarded after six months after they sold the product, how many features of the product are actually being used. So essentially, they didn't just sell and kick it off and run to the next side. They, they, they sold it to someone and then they had to take care of that customer and really show them all the nice features and, and, and everything which is in there. I think this is brilliant because you you... You think in a product to solve problems for your users, for your customer, and, and you take care of them. You, you, it's not just like, um, and apparently, uh, the way I remember this, that many salespeople, they left the company because they didn't want to do that. They weren't able to do that, actually. So they, they brought in new salespeople. <clears throat> There's a couple of things that come out of that. First of all, customer success isn't a department. It's the reason your organization exists. Yeah. And a lot of people miss that trick and they go, oh, well, I just do my thing. And also if we're leaning into this concept that product management strategic and product ownership's tactical, your product owners are then this feature factory manager and they're just pumping widgets out. Who's paying attention? Who's going to put the feature on there? 
about instrumentation. Who wants the dashboard of live updates of, you know, your products like a garden? There's bits that you want to move around. There's some bits that you want to rip out. There's some bits you want to add in. Who's going to pay for the instrumentation of your product to give you objective real-time data? And we see the very aware organizations have this data available and it guides them. And this is, uh, you can tell Mike, um, Martin and I quite fond of Microsoft is Satya Nadella, inspirational CEO, three days into his new job, just turned around and went, I'm getting rid of Windows Mobile. You know, I yep. broke my heart because it was my favorite mobile platform. It was, it, it was different. It wasn't a copy like Android's just a copy of iPhone. They're both yep. locked in ecosystems. Windows Mobile was open. It worked differently anyway. I'll cry about that later. The point was they never got beyond 3% market share after a lot of investment. And there were some really poor product choices. They, I don't know why they did it, but to adopt the next version of the Windows Phone operating system, you had to buy another handset which is very expensive. It wasn't, you, you couldn't just up, update it. It's like, where's your holistic long-term thinking? Where's your care for your customer? And that's where your ultimate product owner, your CEO turns around and goes, you've had your chance, you've blown it, that's gone. And that is the sign of profound product ownership. This is the, the fiscally accountable product owner that Martin's talking about. You're wasting my money. The, the ROI is not there. The juice ain't worth the squeeze. Yeah. I'm not squeezing anymore. So on think, that, yeah. I've got a question for, for Ralph. Ralph, I've yeah. got a question for you to, to Go ahead. Try, try and wrap up, wrap up that. Um, how does a strong product owner really shape product success in a way that an average product manager can't? That's a good question. It's a really good question. Um, so I think that, uh, and maybe it became a little bit clear that actually the way we describe the product owner is, is the, the circle, the span is a little bit wider than a classical project manager. Uh, pro, sorry, classical product manager. This was kind of maybe a Freudian slip here. So, um, because often as a product manager, you really take care of product research and, and what you think should be in there, and then you write it up and you pass it over. And product ownership is basically you know, from the cradle to the grave. And and I think it's like really coming up with an idea. And I think as a good product owner, you are more in love with the problem than with the product. Because while you look into the problem you're going to solve for your customers, how you want to improve their lives, you might come up with a totally different answer eventually. Uh, and which might be hard. And I think product ownership, good product ownership is loving, but uncompromising. You know, if the facts are clear, the facts are clear and you have to follow them. And then basically, you know, working uh, different procurement, doing different finances, if, if you have, if you're empowered to do that, and then really engage with the developers, the scrum teams who are doing the work for you. Uh, so I think this is, I think, where you, you as a really, if you have the chance to lift product ownership as, as we understand it, uh, you will have much more level than uh, a classical product manager. So I'm hearing connection to done, focus on value, metrics, outcomes. 
And it, it also a, a ruthlessness where you'll hold your teams accountable for delivering as well as constantly monitoring the marketplace to ensure you're achieving maximal outcome and impact. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this goes back to if, if the numbers tell you something different, uh, and I think for me, most, most important is cost of delay. Uh, to look at as as to making making feature decisions and things like that. Uh, and if the numbers are, and even you really love that one feature, but if the numbers telling you no, this is well, then you have to do the other thing. And I think this is just was the example about uh, Microsoft Mobile. The numbers are in there. Sorry. I I think the problem the problem for a lot of folks is it's much easier, less effort to just ship lots of shit it's not easy to ship the right thing. It's not easy to, to pull in all of this data and as a product owner, make that call. I mean, Satya's call was a big numbers call, right? I mean, what was the write down, Simon? Was it 12 billion, 8 billion, oh, something like that? Big. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, 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 okay that's a big, big, uh, uh, decision to make but but, but even if you don't think about, it. about those big numbers here it's like you know probably do the same thing but if, if i'm teaching a product owner class i ask who of you is a product owner many hands go up and just say leave your hand up for now now leave your hand still up if you can tell me which features of your product are not being used pretty much most of the sometimes there are one and two hands to say up there and this is, is a good class but so most people, they ship shit, essentially, and they don't even know that they shipped something really not useful uh, because they just go through their feature list. Uh, they, they crank them out. One of the other, yes, we are really good. We are really uh, efficient at what we do, but they ship the wrong product over and over again. And this is where I think kind of like having a really dedicated product cockpit where you as a product owner, you can pretty much on a daily basis see like what's going on uh, and then basically decide decisions on that. My favorite example of that, Ralph, is is totally inconsequential, right? It's, to, it's a total inconsequential example, but I think it it goes to the, the the scale of detail that a product owner and product ownership might really require. Um, when I was working a lot more with the Azure DevOps team, um, they released a, a tool uh, uh, in their product which was about. Um, uh, you could kind of create wireframes and and drawing and kind of plugged into PowerPoint and you could create some cool stuff. And we said to the team, do you have an example of actual usage of this tool? Can you show us something that we can take to our customers and say, look, this is the type of thing that they're doing. And at the time, they were trying to add chat to TFS. It was a total failure of a product, right? That was part of the product. Um, because it just wasn't what people wanted and it was overtaken by events and various things, but they were adding this. And the the feature that they sent us, this PowerPoint presentation, which had all of the, the data, all of the analysis, everything for this product, uh, this feature they hadn't built yet, right, was uh, to add emoticons to the chat. That's how inconsequential it is, right? It's a totally inconsequential feature. There was a whole page that talked about the telemetry that they were going to collect for these emoticons. 
and what they wanted to understand at the level of I'm typing my autocons into the into the into the box was first off, if you click the little emoticon button, how long does the panel take to pop up? If you're typing the emoticon in, how long does it take to convert from the text into the actual emoticon, right? Because you want to convert it in the in the in the chat and back again. And also which emoticons were clicked and how often were they clicked to answer the question of do we have the right emoticons in our space limited panel because you don't want a panel to pop up yeah, yeah, yeah. you just want a small of, of of options that's the level of telemetry that every product team should be looking at for every feature they add in their product and it's the reason I, I don't know if you're familiar with App Insights. Application Insights is Microsoft's kind of kind of telemetry tool. It's just a tool for collecting telemetry. You can do all sorts of clever stuff with it. Um, but Visual Studio, as a product, sends seven and a half terabytes of telemetry every day to the product team. Seven and a half terabytes of just telemetry, just usage data of features and performance and all of those things. So then your product owner is going to task a team to be able to interpret something and create a dashboard from that huge volume of information that goes into your product cockpit. So we're saying that as the differentiator between a run of the mill product owner and an awesome product owner. We've talked about finance, having fiscal empowerment and control. We've talked about an outcome focus where they will minimize the amount of delivery for maximal impact. We've also talked about being data driven. So making yep. sure that that product owner is connected to telemetry and understanding of the product feature usage, also tying that back to the bottom line and the performance of their product towards the company's strategic goals technically as well as business-wise so it becomes I, a super important uh, accountability to help your whole organization deliver customer success i, I want to tap on data data driven um I'm going, to, I'm going to use that expression that we all hate i'm going to double click on that simon the the it, do we mean data driven or do we mean data informed? So there are there are times as well. Although Ralph alluded to making a decision to kill a feature you really like because the data is telling you to kill it, but you also need to bring your experience as a product owner and a product manager to 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 the to the story and say well. Maybe the data says that not because there's something wrong with the feature, but because there's something wrong with something else. A, a yeah. great... Okay, so I completely accept data informed because we have biases like survivability bias. We've got confirmation bias. All of these things will be kicking in because we're human. So data informed is a much better explanation. Otherwise, we may as well... Uh, hand over to chat gpt right the the discussion yeah. we're having before we jump <laughs> into the podcast right tell me what to do need product fire it into an ai and robert's your mother's brother um so uh, tapping into our humanity making sure that we have objective 
and accurate data to inform us. Also, because we're human, we can be able to detect the difference between a leading and a lagging indicator and have that discussion. But ultimately, leaning into it, making a decision and being accountable for that decision. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a multi 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 billion dollar feature in a product, which is crazy that a product could have a multi billion dollar feature, right? But a multi billion dollar feature in a product almost be killed because the telemetry was telling them that nobody was using it, um, when in fact the telemetry was telling them that nobody knew it was there. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Motion bias, right? Yeah. Yeah. It 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 it, it takes it takes extra extra insight but that only comes from experience right um a newbie newbie product owner is going to make incorrect decisions and they have to then look at the telemetry that comes out after that right you're looking at your value telemetry are we actually uh, uh, creating happy customers that, that that are loving our product that are delighted with our product and bring that those lagging measures back into their own personal feedback loop of where their decisions I could have made better. And if I could have made them better, what knowledge or what data, what information would I have needed to make that uh, uh, decision better next time around and then start collecting that data, understanding that thing. So we're yeah. looking for empirical product owners. We're looking <laughs> product owners that are connected to value. We've said that to scale product ownership, you need to be able to delegate and share authority and constraints and make sure that cascades down. So if you're yep. looking after multiple teams, you will cascade your accountability, but ultimately it's your neck in the noose. You're still accountable for that if you have many teams and scaling is a whole other topic but product ownership can scale in the same way that your organization will scale. Just to wrap it up, we've, we've probably got, hopefully got some listeners out there um, and they might be thinking, what's my next step to get better? So yeah. we do need product managers. We do need product owners. A uh, product owner is an agile product manager. How do we help or what would you do? What's your top tip? I, um, I want to improve in this space. What should I do? I think you should always know kind of, first of all, have your baseline that you can see kind of, am I, am I moving in the right direction? So kind of really establish you. Are you more like a Stripe type proxy product uh, owner type along those lines? And then think about what could be my next step. A good step is always usually do I understand the domain I'm a product owner for? Uh, do I know the people who will be using with that product? So essentially, what are all the activities you could put in place to, to learn about that? Uh, maybe start reading books about that topic, start to people, uh, talk people who are working in that area, uh, and you'll broaden your understanding about all of these things. And while you do that, try to bring that understanding also then into your product. And this is, this is again, I think it sounds very simple and logical. On the other hand, then you have this conflict because your organization may be expected to be this type of a striped product owner. So there's a little bit maybe to politics, another place you have to do right in order to get there. But I think in, in, at the bottom line is do good things and show that they work. 
and, and once you are capable of doing that, you get more leeway. You can move a little bit further to the right, you know, become a business representative who knows about this, maybe get some more fiduciary rights to work with some larger amounts of money. Maybe eventually you can really become this, hey, I have a good product vision. I have good ideas about specific uh, things we could be doing and then and, and start to own those. So growing up in that empowerment space, what what's your thoughts, Martin? I I think there's there's a combination of things that, that you need you need to enjoy what you're doing. Um, and the reason I say you need to enjoy what you're doing is because people generally care about things they enjoy and they care less about things they don't. The difficulty is, like Ralph was talking about, if you're in a position where you have lesser authority than you actually need to do the job, it's causing a lot of friction and you're not enjoying it because of, like, I would be enjoying it if it was it was in a certain way. Um, so, so, so learning is probably the most important thing. Uh, like Ralph said, read books, read blog posts. Uh, one of my favorite blog posts I ever read started with the phrase, if you're reading this, you're already in the top 10%. Um, because most people don't read. Most people don't look at blog posts. They don't talk about the trends. They don't uh, keep up to date with what's going on. They don't take uh, uh, that cool training course on that cool topic that you thought would be interesting and you just want to see what it's all about. People don't do that normally. So if you are wanting to be an amazing product owner, then do those things, right? Be interested in the topic, uh, uh, discover uh, uh, things that might be useful and then try them, right? And then bring those stories to the, to the, to the, to the community of, I've tried this, it didn't work this way. How else might I, might I try this thing? You know, share knowledge. That's, that's how you become the best is we're not in it alone. There's lots of other product managers out there, lots of other project managers who are all willing to share because they're in that top 10%. Um, yeah. Read, learn, uh, try. Listen to podcasts, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe subscribe to our podcast so that yeah. uh, you can, I you can, can subscribe. Yeah. Uh, more. yeah. So invest in yourself, be curious, go and learn more, go to meetups, hang out. I'm going to suggest something you don't do and that's don't get sucked into the noise on social media. Um, sure. There's, there's a lot of try and make sure that when you're reading and getting stuff, just do a sense check with the people around you to make sure that you're learning from reputable sources. Yeah. There, there's a lot of crap on the interwebs. Yeah. So yeah, just remember it's the internet and don't confuse volume with quality, which is probably not a bad shout for product ownership in general. Right. I think it's, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Less of the right is less of the right in good quality. Absolutely. It's more worse than, uh, Lots of unused features. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we should wrap it up there. 